Let's pray. Lord, thanks for the opportunity to gather around your word as a body of Christ. Lord, I do ask that uh, as I preach, Father, that, Lord, you would give me the, the things to say and the applications to make, Lord, but most importantly, Lord, I do pray that your word would be declared clearly, would be understood. Lord, I pray that as it's preached, Father, that your spirit ministers to our hearts so that we can be obedient to your word. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So we've been in Titus for, I think this is the fourth sermon, isn't it? In Titus, or third? Third. Third sermon, we're just past the introduction, and now we're going to get to where uh, the actual instructions for Titus from Paul. Now Titus is a church planter. He's a church planter. He wouldn't be there permanently. At the very end of Titus, uh, Paul asks him when he sends some replacements Artemis and Tychicus, that he does his best to meet him somewhere else. So he goes with Paul, Paul leaves him somewhere to establish a church, and then he goes somewhere else, and then he'll catch up with Paul and then get directed somewhere else after that. There's just church planning going on all the time. So much to where, as you can see, we're going to be picking up in verse 5, he tells him to appoint elders in every town. So Every town in Crete uh, had some remnant of believers. Now, as far as who originally planted the first church in Crete, uh, we're not really sure. Um, Crete is mentioned in the book of Acts. They kind of drift by there um, when Paul is on the ship on his way to his, his Roman imprisonment, but uh, his first imprisonment. So this is likely happening after... Paul's first imprisonment, that sort of that house arrest he was under, between then and then that time he's in chains and writes 2 Timothy. So here we have uh, Titus being instructed by Paul to do the two main things that church planners do. And that is, as you can see, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So Titus is a church planning expert, as you could say. He, he's been with Paul. He's already been directed by Paul on how to appoint elders. And he leaves in there so that he might put what remained in order. So to teach doctrine, to teach truth, and then to appoint leadership in that realm after all that's been established. And then he goes away. And he allows the Spirit of God to continue to work in that church and to build that church up. Um, so putting what remained in order, bringing them in alignment of the truth, meant that Titus had to have a knowledge of the truth. And of course, that comes from discipleship. That is what Paul said in his introduction, the very beginning, verse one. I, uh, I Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. Their knowledge of the truth. To teach people, to disciple them along, into what the word of God says. That is imperative. It's of course imperative that a leader would know how to do that. And so he has his orders. He's putting what remains in order. When you look at the culture of Crete, we mentioned that before, uh, that their own prophet said Cretans are always, Cretans are always 
liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. We were reminded of what that culture is like to set things in order, to give them truth, was imperative. Whenever church planners go into a new culture, they have to show those people, according to the word of God, what things are acceptable to God and which things are not acceptable to God. And that was his duty. Sounds like a pretty big job. I'm sure it was. But when the spirit of God and the hand of the Lord is upon something that's going on in a community, there's one thing you don't have to teach, and that is to get people to care about the glory of God. When the spirit of God and the hand of the Lord is active upon a community, active upon a church plant, that's one thing you don't have to worry about. You allow the Holy Spirit to do his work of convicting men of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. So he goes out and he appoints elders in every town. Now, the first thing that Paul's going to mention is that they should be blameless, these elders. He's going to lay out, and I, I really feel like when, when we say that he's putting things in alignment, okay, he's setting things right. The way we set things right in the church is we have leaders who lead by example for others to follow. What I don't want you to hear from this sermon, and I'm, I think I'll be pretty clear about it, is that we have two different standards for Christians in our church. We don't have a standard for elders and a standard for non-elders. We have a standard for elders because the same standard applies for everyone else. Okay? You hearing me? We have a same standard for elders because the same standards applies to everyone else. So, the first thing he does is he says that he must be a husband of one wife. What you'll see over and over again is that it seems like the only people that were elders, according to how Paul says it, were men. And that would be true. According to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, men were the only ones that were allowed to teach or to have authority uh, over other men in the church. Women were forbidden to do this. Um, that doesn't seem fair, but it, it doesn't matter how it seems, does it? When, when we come to the word of God, what matters is what's written there, and we conform our heart to it. We don't allow the culture of our nation, the pagan sort of things that come around us, decide how we should feel about things. If we feel a certain way and that contradicts scripture, we come to scripture and we say, oh no, I've got to change my heart on that, okay? I've got to change my heart on that. So you have to be a man to be an elder. Secondly, you must be the husband of one wife. Now there's a couple of ways that this is interpreted, uh, and there's the best way that it's interpreted. Okay, if, if and I didn't mention this before, but if maybe you thought this about the way it sounds to be a husband of one wife, um, forbidding people that were divorced, or maybe you think that single people can't be elders. Um, if you still want to believe that at the end of the sermon, it's okay. You're not a heretic. Uh, but this is what we're going to promote in this church. This is how we're going to rightly divide scripture. This is a husband of one wife. Now, there was no word for husband in the Greek, so this is really, it just means a one-woman man. Okay, or the kind of guy that's a one-woman kind of guy. Okay, now it doesn't mean that he has to necessarily be married, and the reason I say that is because if it were saying that you had to be married to be an elder, it would say the husband of a wife. 
not the husband of one wife, right? Or he'd just say you had to be married. He says you have to be the husband of one wife. If it meant that you couldn't be divorced or you could never have been married before, right? Uh, well, if, if it was that you couldn't be divorced, there was language in the Greek that could say, that would easily say you can't be divorced. It's not like he couldn't say that. He wouldn't have said it this way if he was trying to just say you couldn't have ever been divorced. And to think that a widower, someone whose wife has died, and they remarry, they weren't qualified to be an elder. It was be a little confusing because Paul seems to indicate in Romans chapter 7 in his analogy that when there's a death, that the marriage covenant is broken. That's why we say, till death do us, do us part. And if it were to be, if single people weren't allowed to be elders, of course, then it would be confusing again because of 1 Corinthians 7 where he says that, I wish you were like me if you would remain single. For those who are single, for those who are unmarried, I wish you'd remain like me, Right? to be unmarried. He, I don't think that Paul would advocate singleness if it disqualified you from being a leader in the church. So what does it mean? Well, it means to be the kind of person that it's a one-woman kind of man. You're not, a, you're not known in the community as being the type of person that sort of just kind of jumps into different relationships. You're not a player. If you are a single man, you're not known for constantly playing the crowd. You're not having this relationship after this relationship after this relationship because you have some sort of need for that. A one-woman man is a reflection of the gospel. Uh, it says in Ephesians chapter 5 that, that husbands are to love their wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Meaning that just as Christ is devoted to us, so an elder of the church is to be to his wife. That's a pretty high standard. That's a pretty high calling. I think that would be a great standard for an elder. I think that would be great. Now, again, does this mean that everybody else gets a pass? No, of course not. You see, the way an elder loves his wife is an example for all the men in our church to love their wives because as we stand as an example of fidelity in marriage and and an example of Christ's love for the church to the men of the church, the men of the church are an example for Christ's love for the church to the world. You go out there and your love for your wife is an example to the world for Christ's love for the church. And so, of course, our leaders should have that kind of relationship with our wife. It goes without saying. We lead by example. He says his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Whenever, when I think I was, it wasn't probably that long ago when I heard that qualification for elders means your kids have to be believers. I thought, oh man, like, that's kind of weird because, I mean, how do I know if my kids, you know, going to get saved? How do I know, that, know for certain that they're going to turn their lives over to the Lord? I don't know that for certain, right? Well, I don't know if, for instance, right now, my youngest is five and my oldest is 11. And I don't know for certain whether they're truly redeemed. It's not like they have a lot of opportunities in life <laughs> to run off and sin. And we don't have a machine in the basement that runs them through and tells us if they're elect or not, right? You can't tell whether someone's saved, but actually you can tell if they're unsaved. 
How do you tell? Well, he lists it right here. If they are open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, they are unbelievers. You cannot be a believer and be an unsubordinate person. You cannot be a believer and have a lifestyle of debauchery. Debauchery is a lifestyle of carnal, lascivious living. It is an excessive indulgence in sensual pleasures. Excessive indulgence in sensual pleasures. Ephesians 5.18 calls drunkenness debauchery. If you're an elder and your child is known for going out and being a drunkard, you are not qualified to be an elder in the church. But it's not a punishment. (laughs) It's an opportunity for you to step down and invest time into your children. There are a lot of men in ministry that shouldn't be in ministry because their children are running rampant. Their lifestyles only reflect Satan. They are children of the devil. They're not children of God. And therefore, they should step down and they should devote their life to their children, pour the gospel into their children. And it's even more convicting because the reality is we hold elders to that standard. Why? Because it's not just elders' kids who are to be holy and obedient. It's all of our kids should be holy and obedient children. Because your kids are in the community. Your kids are in the schools. Your kids are the ones that are holding up open doors for people in restaurants. And people say, that's peculiar. Look at that little guy. Look at him do that. That's just totally weird. My kids are just staring at their their iPod all day long, right? And this kid's out here serving people. And then they're listening as you pray for your food. And your kids are respectful and they're kind, right? They're not insubordinate. You don't let them get away with that. Your kids aren't the ones that are running around doing whatever you want and you just don't care. We've seen that before. That's the way the world does it. The world's like, eh, well, if they're... If they're I'm going to say Game Boy, that dates me. Their Game Boy is not entertaining them. Then I don't know what else to do. I mean, the kids just don't listen, you know. People around me just kind of get over it. That's the way the world is. That's not the way believers are. And that's certainly not the way elders' children are. We hold elders to that standard. Because elders are an example. They're a living example. You say, well, isn't that unfair to put their children at that level, their wife at that level. Don't you feel like you're kind of putting them on a pedestal? No, I'm not putting them on a pedestal. The word of God does not put people on pedestals so that there's a separate standard of living. It's more like we're in a battle and our elders are the ones on the war horse. Okay, they're the captain. They're the one we follow. They're the example that we follow. Because we want to be like Christ and we expect our leadership to be like Christ. When you say to yourself, man, I'm really struggling with temptation. I'm really struggling with debauchery. I'm really struggling with, um, with, being, to, with being a drunkard. I'm really struggling with the ability to lead. Who should you look to? You should look to the elders. You should look to the elders. And that puts the elders in a very, very hot spot. It says in James 1 that not all of you should be teachers because they're under a stricter judgment. They're under a stricter judgment. There's a higher standard because we are leading people. We're leading people and we can lead them astray by our own lives. 
So we have to be certain that an elder that we're looking for is the type of person that is blameless, that is above reproach. An overseer, he says in verse 7, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must be above reproach. It is not an option. We don't get to sort of like ignore one little blight on an elder's life. They must be blameless. They must be blameless. They must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered. An elder must not be arrogant or quick-tempered. What do I mean by arrogance? Well, by arrogance, I mean what, what Paul said. For by the grace given to me, I say to you, this is Romans 12, 3, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. We walk by faith. Now, does that mean the elders can't be assertive? Does that mean the elders don't rebuke sharply? Of course they do. They're leaders. They're strong men of God. That doesn't mean they're arrogant. They don't need to back up what they say with a bunch of pomp. You know, arrogance is just a bluffing tactic. You know, you've seen those, the gorillas that, you know, they charge one another, but they don't really mean to do anything. They're just throwing stuff in the air. That's what arrogance is. 1 Samuel 2.3, from Hannah's prayer, she prayed, Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge. By him, actions are weighed. By him, actions are weighed. God's looking at what you say, and he's looking at what you do. And if what you say doesn't line up with what you do, because you've got to talk a big game with no follow-up, then you're arrogant. You're arrogant. And you're not qualified to be a leader in the church. Our leaders are supposed to be held to that standard. Why? Because that's the standard we all fall under. None of us ought to be arrogant. None of us ought to be here. We shouldn't be telling our children that if anybody doesn't believe in Jesus, they're just stupid. They're just stupid. What kind of idiot do you have to be not to believe in Jesus? You have to be dead not to believe in Jesus. It has nothing to do with that. We don't tell our children, you have to be stupid to believe in evolution. That's just silly, isn't it? It's just stupid, isn't it? Those people don't believe in evolution because they're stupid. They believe in it because they don't know God. If they knew God, then they'd know truth. If they had an experience with God, then they would ditch whatever they were believing and run after God. And we demonstrate Christ to them. We show them what God looks like. And God is not arrogant. God can back what he says. We want to be truthful in what we speak. And it's no different when it comes to the believers. We aren't arrogant. We aren't boastful. We don't need to do that. And so we hold our elders to that accountable nature. They must meet that quality. Often arrogance and quick-tempered nature go hand in hand. You can tell because arrogant people don't like to be told that they're wrong, right? Arrogant people always have to prove that they're right. 
You see that with, with politicians, especially the ones that are running for president right now. Every time somebody accuses them of something, they just kind of sidestep and act like, oh, I wasn't at fault. I wasn't at fault. That's arrogance. That's not the way we are. We could admit to fault. We don't blow the top like a quick-tempered person does. But that doesn't mean that just because you're not arrogant means you're quick-tempered. There are some quick-tempered people that can really put the lid on for a really long time. Maybe they hold off this pseudo-humility all day long, but when they get home, they can finally blow the top on their kids and their wife. Unqualified. Unacceptable. Unacceptable. That is not the kind of leadership we want to lead. We do not want our men in our church, or women in our church, or children in our church to have examples of leadership that cannot control their temper. It says in Proverbs 14, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who is hasty in his temper exalts folly. Ecclesiastes 7 says, be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Ouch, right? That's how fools act. What is a fool? A fool is someone who operates solely on their carnal nature. That's all they do. And elders are not supposed to be that way. We do not select elders like that. We don't select elders based on the prowess in their community, the influence that they have, the money that they have. It has nothing to do with that. We select elders on the holiness of their character because we care about the holiness of your character. That's why. Paul is not insinuating that any believer gets a pass on any of these things. Elders are a model of Christian behavior. They are not modeling it for your scrutiny. They model it for your understanding. Elders model the Christian life for your help. Say, I'm, I'm really having a hard time with my temper. Do you think the elders haven't dealt with that? Do you think the elders are somehow impervious to the temptation to be quick-tempered or arrogant? No. <laughs> they are not. But they can teach you how to enjoy grace. They can teach you where to turn when you're tempted in those ways. They ought to be able to. If they can't, then they can't be elders. We need strong leaders in the church. He says you can't be a drunkard to be an elder. If you're an elder, you can't be the type of person that's known as the party guy, the big drinker. I have a lot of guys in my barber chair who sit down, and the first thing they want to talk about is the glory of, the, of booze. I mean, the only thing they want to talk about is, and usually I can, they're, they're coming off of whatever they were enjoying when they, when they brag about these sort of things. But that's not the way leaders are in the church. We don't boast in that sort of thing. And we sure, certainly aren't drunkards. We don't make a practice of drinking to where we're inebriated. And neither should you. The reason that we, don't, we, don't, we require the elders don't do that is because we require that you don't do that. You should not be getting drunk. That is debauchery, according to Ephesians 5. Debauchery. You cannot be violent. Elders can't be violent. I think a great 
synonymous word for that is just to be a bully. You're not a bully. Elders can't be bullies. We all know what a bully is. Bully is the type of person that if they don't get what they want, they make other people's lives miserable until they get what they want. Even with manipulation, wives can be bullies. If they manipulate their husband to get what they want all the time, and manipulate him with their feelings and their emotions, oh, you're hurting me, right? You're hurting my feelings. How can we never get to do what I want to do? And guys can do the same thing with their wife. You never listen. You manipulate. You bully. How are we supposed to lead? How are elders supposed to lead? Well, it says in uh, 1 Peter 5.3, he calls elders to refrain from exercising oversight by domineering over people. How do they do it? He says, lead by example. Lead by example. That's why we have all these requirements. If you want to know how to lead, look at an elder. How do they lead the church? They should be an example of spiritual leadership. That is what an elder ought to be and ought to do. Because that is what you ought to do. You should not be a bully. You should not be known. If you're an employer or you're a manager or if you're anybody working around you at all during the week, you should not be known as the type of person that gets what they want because if they don't, might might blow their top. You're not inspiring people to work by your anger or your pressure or your threats. That's a bully. That's a violent man. What do you do? You show them by example. I love this example because it's so true in my life. Nobody has ever motivated me to work hard like James Osborne. Nobody. Nobody. And I get in the mud. And James is the kind of guy, man, he gets so fired up. And, you know, he loves working. He loves working so much. He probably is terrible for his body. <laughs> he just pushes himself so hard. But, you know, as a young man, when I'd, when I'd get to where I was learning how to muck or I was learning how to screech, I was learning how to finish. I loved it when James got in the mud because he was just such a great example of a hard worker. It got me energized. It made me want to work hard too. That's a good example of an example-driven leadership. And that's what we promote. That's what we enjoy. That's how leaders lead in our church. They're not bullies. And lastly, they're not greedy for gain. In, in 1 Timothy 3, he says they're not greedy for unjust gain or sordid gain. But it means pretty much the same thing. If you're greedy for gain, you will compromise what is true or you will compromise what you know is right in order to get what you want in the end. The ends justify the means to a greedy person who's greedy for gain. I think most of us have known Christians like that. And it's heartbreaking, isn't it? Because when they try to live out their Christian life and do that at the same time, it's just, you just wish they'd stop doing one or the other. Either stop telling people that they need Jesus and, and continue in this fraudulent fake stuff or stop the fake stuff and continue telling people about Christ. Of course, we'd rather have them do the latter. Elders cannot 
be those people. They cannot turn a blind eye. They can't turn a blind eye to a deal. They are men of integrity. As Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. A righteous man swears to his own hurt. That is the character of an elder. They are an example of that because that is how we all should be doing our deals. We don't get gain by unjust means or by sordid gain. I've had somebody ask me, do you think it's wrong for a Christian to own a bar? I said, well, what if your pastor owned a bar? What if your pastor turned a blind eye to debauchery that he was fueling? Where adultery was happening, where, where all kinds of lasciviousness was happening, but he was making a good profit on it. Would you be okay with that? I wouldn't. That's sordid gain. So no, Christians shouldn't own bars. We are a light in darkness. You see? See how important it is to live according to the word of God? This is our opportunity to show the glory of God in the world. When you look at elders and you look at the standards of which they live, you say, that's where I want to be. That's why Paul said, if anyone seeks the office of an elder, that is an honorable ambition. That's an honorable ambition. You should want to be like those guys. You should want to be patient like those men, humble like those men, leaders like those men. You should want the self-control that those men have. You should look at those men and say, this is, a, this is a Christian example that I can look to because that's what elders are. That's what we're here for. We're here for you to grow. We're for, here for you to rise up and mature to the full stature of Jesus Christ. Because when this church, you see, the church is not going to bring people in to its doors. We're not going to bring unbelievers in here because the leadership in our church is cool. We're not. It doesn't matter how many skinny jeans we own. It doesn't matter if we sit on a bench and drink a latte. It doesn't matter how many lasers and lights we have in here. The millennials, the reality is, I've, just, I've done a lot of research on this when I was studying. Millennials are leaving the church. People from... I think they said uh, 18 or 20 to 30. They're not interested in the church. You know why? It's not because the church isn't preaching truth. It's because the church is not preaching truth. They want reality. They want to see people's lives really actually changed by the gospel. They want to meet people that they work with who are different than everybody else. And when they see that they're different from everybody else, they'll say, where do you go to church? Because I want some of that. Because whatever it is that you do, it makes you different than everyone else. It is you who increase the church. It is you who disciple. It is the elders who stand as an example of leadership, leading by example in that very cause. But if you are a Christian, you are in the army of Christ. You are a soldier of the cross. You follow the leadership of this church for the glory of God. That is intent. And in this church, we preach the word of God so that you will know how to fight. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way it challenges us, the way it molds us, the way it directs our life. Lord, now is our opportunity to enjoy communion with you. It is our opportunity to enjoy 
Lord, this wonderful gift of being able to, to fellowship with the saints, to enjoy um, all the representations of your blood and your body given over for us to change us to be like you. And Lord, now we ask that your spirit come and pierce our heart. Lord, reveal in us the ways that we have fallen short and we have, we have looked over those things. We have covered over those things. We have ignored those things. Lord, bring them to full strength before our eyes like David wrote in the psalm. Lord, my sin is always before me. Lord, I pray that you bring that before us, Lord. We want to confess those things. We want to agree that those things are sin so we can have fellowship with you. We can walk in light as you are in the light. Our joy may be full. Lord, we're so thankful for this church. We're so thankful for these believers. Lord, I pray that you are honored and glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.